0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth,
1: I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Our Father, now we pray that you would indeed cause us to trust you more, uh, understanding what you have promised in the Lord Jesus and what he has set uh, forth to accomplish for his own kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening, sing these songs with you. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, We're so glad to be together here. Uh, Just tonight, assembled under God's word, we've often said before that there is A time in which there is no other time in the history of this church before or after where these specific people will gather together in this specific building under this specific text uh, singing together these specific songs. So what a night to be together. Uh, It it strikes me every year when I'm sitting in a coffee shop or like walking through the grocery store or something when I hear something like, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity coming through the loudspeakers. Like it's Starbucks. Like deep, rich theology, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Uh, that, of course, comes from Hark Herald Angels Sing the Greatest Christmas Hymn of All. We'll sing that together on Tuesday here uh, at 3 o'clock, along with some other Christmas hymns and carols. We'd love to see you there. And yet, while there is deep theology out there in this Christmas season, it's mostly just kind of floating around, this deep theology. Uh, Christmas in America is primarily a season not of deep and rich theology, but that of nostalgia, that of sentimentality. Uh, Matt Jones, who works in Uptown, uh, he was just reflecting the other day uh, just about this as he walks around, around his place of business. If you've been around Uptown these days, you know, there's a giant Christmas tree, uh, but there is loud Christmas music uh, wherever you are walking. And the days and the work and the walks around Uptown are just like every other day uh, throughout the year, except for these just blaring happy Christmas songs, which are just trying to make people feel the, the season. And hopefully feeling that season will spend more money because of it. We all know that Hallmark Christmas movies have long been a thing, Uh, but now like all of the streaming services have pushed all in on these things. Like there's more than you could possibly watch if you started like on Thanksgiving day and watched four or five a day. There's just so many of them, but why would they do these? Uh, Keep making them. They, They can't like keep up with our urge, like our subconscious need for what's going on. I don't know. Uh, it's, the, it's the season. I don't know. Uh, these, this need for just more and more nostalgia, more and more sentimentality, more and more even romance. Because if we're honest, this time of year, this time of season, we feel like we should feel more deeply the kinds of feelings that we think that we ought to feel, and yet we don't. And so we kind, kind of try to drum up even more emotion of nostalgia, of love, of sentimentality, like we were thinking about last week, perhaps, not always, but perhaps, just uh, piling on one layer of icing over the next. More icing and more icing with no cake, no fixed substance underneath, which is why after Christmas, like January or December 26th, it can feel like such a letdown, right? It didn't do almost what I hoped it would have done, And so I have been building towards this with lots of emotion and lots of feeling and just even good sentimentality. And then it just kind of didn't keep its promise back to reality after the sentimentality has evaporated. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've been hitting some of the highlights throughout the book of Isaiah. And tonight in chapter 42, Isaiah is going to introduce the first of the so called songs of the servant, the servant songs, which will reappear throughout chapter 55. And like where we were headed at the end of chapter 40 last week, uh, that of like go telling it on the mountain, the work of the servant is the work for the entire world. An initial reading of Isaiah might suggest to us that the servant uh, that appears over and over again throughout the book of Isaiah is. Israel, the nation of Israel. Chapter 41 verse 8 explicitly says, but you, Israel, my servant. So Israel is the servant for sure, but the further and deeper that we read in Isaiah and then throughout the rest of the Bible, the servant must actually be more narrow, more specific than that of the entire nation of Israel. And so tonight we're going to focus our attention on this servant in two halves of these nine verses of Isaiah 42, in that of the ministry of the servant and the kingdom of the servant. And by doing so, we'll hopefully hopefully, more deeply understand the meaning and the scope of this Christmas season. So first of all, the ministry of the servant, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 42, God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And here's where we lose out by. Not going, not going fully through the entirety of the book of Isaiah, where we kind of have parachuted in and we miss out on going like verse by verse throughout the whole book. But in chapter 41, God has just called the people into Jerusalem. He's called all of the nation in to bring all of their idols and he's gonna have them do some experiments with these idols like Elijah putting the Yahweh versus Baal competition to the test uh, in front of King Ahab in 1 Kings 18, now God is going to challenge the people to actually see who it is that is worthy of their worship. So God says, through the prophet Isaiah, he says, like, let's see if these idols can tell us about the past. Let's see if these idols can tell us about the future. And then in verse 24, In verses 29 of Isaiah 41, God is saying, like, behold, look at them. In verse 24, he says, behold, you idols are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. And then in verse 29, God says, behold, they, these idols, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So it's on the heels of these two beholds, these two look at these idols, that God then turns his gaze and his attention to the servant in chapter 42, where in verse one he says, behold, look, look, my servant, look at him whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The the appearance and the arrival of this servant on the scene kind of comes out of nowhere, and it might even be a bit unexpected. If if God is calling in all these idols, and then he just says out of nowhere, just behold, look at him. Well, who is him? The servant is God's answer to a world of weak and of deaf gods, to a world of idols who offer a sense of spirituality, a sense of belonging, but who themselves cannot speak, nor have the power to effect change, the power to bring justice or righteousness to the world. So God will speak to the world and act to the world through the work and the ministry of the servant, but what will he do and how will he do it? Well, in verse 1, the servant will bring forth justice to the nations. And we don't have time to get into the complexity of that word, this word of justice, the Hebrew word of mishpat. File that one away. Remember that for later. Mishpat. But for now, we can just say that it certainly doesn't just mean uh, that evildoers will receive punishment for their evil doing, right? That's generally what we mean by justice. He received justice. Well, he received punishment for his wrongdoing. If we go back to the tabernacle plans from Exodus 26, where we were at a month or two ago, God says this, Exodus 26. See if you can hear the word justice in here. I'm going to give you a hint. The word justice does not appear in this English translation, but the Hebrew word of mishpat does. Where does it appear? God says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. The word justice there is the English word, the plan. Mishpat, justice. It's like a blueprint for the tabernacle. Moses is to put into motion the blueprint for the tabernacle, so we can almost say that the servant will bring forth or establish justice, just like Moses was meant to build and then set up the tabernacle in exactly the way that God had wanted it, the exactly the way that God had intended for it. The servant will establish the world in exactly the way that God wanted for the world and had intended for the world, which certainly means ending injustice, but also in fully establishing justice for the world, in establishing. Shalom, peace, life, flourishing life with God. So the servant will bring forth flourishing life for the world. Now, just briefly, if you've ever had a Jewish friend, uh, you will, uh, your your Jewish friend will undoubtedly say that this servant was the nation of Israel. And in fact, we've already seen in chapter 41 that Israel is indeed the servant. Are, are, we making, are we jumping it to conclusions too quickly as Christians to just say that this servant is Jesus? Well, first we could say, yeah, the servant is Israel. God called Abraham and promised him uh, that his descendants would be a blessing to the entire world. The nation would be a blessing to the nations. They were to be the nozzle on the end of the hose through which God would water and uh, bless the entire world. They were to be the kingdom of priests, who were interceding between God and the world, that the world might know God and love God. You could say that they were meant to be the doctors of the world. They were to go out and properly diagnose and then heal this worldwide sickness of sin. The problem, of course, is that the doctors were also infected with the same disease that they were supposed to be diagnosing. And so the kind of sinless obedience described of the servant in chapter 50 or in chapter 53 that allows the servant to to bear the sins of the world cannot be Israel because they are indeed bearing the same sins. They are sick with the same sickness. And so Isaiah is looking forward toward a future servant to do this work. A better, more faithful, obedient servant to do this So behold him, look to him, God says, who receives the Spirit of God and in whom the Father delights. Uh, There's there's no accident that in Jesus' baptism, in all of the accounts, uh, the gospel writers are drawing our attention to Isaiah 42, he who receives the Spirit and in whom the Father is well pleased. And this servant will bring justice to the nations, he will bring the, the blueprint for the world. And then in verses 2 and 3, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, if it isn't clear uh, who the servant is that Isaiah is looking toward, again, Matthew, like the other gospel writers, is going to draw our attention back to Isaiah. Matthew is going to directly quote this entire section in Matthew 12. In chapter 12 of Matthew, uh, Jesus has just healed a bunch of folks, uh, and then he just gets out of there. He's healed them, and he's, and he's, he's out of there. Many others are trying to follow him and keep up with him, and he heals them along the way, but then he tells them not to tell anyone. And then, after all that, Matthew then quotes all of this from chapter 42 of Isaiah. Matthew says that all of that healing and quietness was to fulfill all of this in chapter 42. Uh, Yes, he's bringing mishpat. He's bringing justice. He's bringing the right blueprint for flourishing life in his healing ministry. But he's also fulfilling Isaiah 42 in not just doing that, but in not calling attention to himself. Not wanting to be crowned or worshiped as some sort of like party magician, some healing wizard that all of the people are coming to just be healed from and by, but as the servant of Isaiah. And the servant doesn't just bring the blueprint for the world, but Isaiah 53 also goes to great lengths to show that the servant will also be a suffering servant. He's not just a wizard, but he is one who will suffer on behalf of his people. He is the doctor who is not infected with the disease of sin, but that will heal his people by taking their disease in himself, dying in their place. Or as Isaiah 53 says, He has borne our griefs and He has carried our sorrows, and by His wounds we are healed. Now, this seems like it might be like a really great place to uh, quote from the Puritan Richard Sibbs whose awesome book, The Bruised Reed and the Smoking Flax. Uh, If you've never read it, you really should. I think we have one out here, just The Bruised Reed. Uh, Seriously, like if you read this book, it'll just make you a Christian all over again. It's just really, really great. If you know of this Bruised Reed verse from Isaiah 42, you're like, hey, I know that. I've heard this bruised reed. He will not break. I I know of that. Uh, You've likely been influenced by Richard Sibb's little book where we are thought of as weak and bruised reeds. Sibs will go on at great lengths to preach to his readers, but that Jesus is just so gentle with. Like, listen to this. This bruising makes us set a high price upon Christ. Then the gospel becomes the gospel indeed. Look to the promises. God accepts our prayers, though weak, because we are his own children. There is never a holy sigh, never a tear we shed, which is lost. And then tweet this there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Are you not converted? Like Richard Sibb's book is just so good, and this is exactly the kind of comfort that Isaiah 40 is trying to bring to us, the comfort of Christ. But as spiritually helpful as it all is, I don't think that's what Isaiah and Matthew have in mind. Jesus's gentleness with weak sinners, if I can disagree with the wonderful, wonderful Richard Sibbs. Rather, I think that Isaiah and Matthew are describing the unassuming and quiet ministry of service and of death that Jesus will bring to establish justice. Think about this. R- rethink through Isaiah 42 uh, three verse three in this kind of thinking. One commentator says, "This servant, the suffering servant, Keeps such a low profile that as he passes through the marshes, not even bruised reeds will break off. There are bruised reeds in which the servant is walking through, and not even the almost broken, bruised ones will break off because he hardly even touches them. His draft won't have enough force to blow out even a smoldering wick. So the servant will come in such unassuming weakness, in such unassuming humility to establish peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. He comes in a manger in Bethlehem. He doesn't come as a king in Rome. The, The bruised reeds and the smoldering candles, they barely even notice when he walks by. But his ministry will not end merely when those closest to him will hear him and believe him. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So he is coming in an unassuming way in his first coming, but he will not rest until the entire earth is filled with his justice. The heavenly blueprint for mishpat, for shalom, for justice and for peace, for flourishing life, the heavenly blueprint is not for just a small nation of Israel, but is meant for the entire world, even the faraway coastlands who God intends to live with in covenantal love. And yet there are still places that do not know him. There are even places uh, that do know him, but that are still dwelling in injustice, Even our own hearts that have not been fully established in the justice of God. And so the ministry of the servant continues so that now, secondly, he might establish the kingdom of the servant. Beginning in verse 5, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. So in chapter 40, where we were last week, God moved toward his people with comfort. He tells them that he is faithful to be with them and to be their God. Even in their faithlessness, he will be faithful to them. Even in that chapter, though, their comfort was not meant for them to then comfortably live in isolation. They were to shout the good news of salvation from the highest mountain. God's people were to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. And so here, the ministry of the suffering servant to his people is now intended to move through his people. God is calling his people to himself, and then he is saying, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes, to bring out prisoners. King Jesus is now definitely reigning over his people, and that does definitely bring us comfort, or at least it ought. But Jesus is not just king over the church. He is our king, certainly. But he is king over the entire world which he has created. The world and the universe which he has stretched out. He is king over the universe. John Newton once said, There is one political maxim which comforts me. One maxim which comforts the the writer of Amazing Grace. This is it. The Lord reigns. And this is needed for us today, not only as the American political landscape is very shaky, is questionable across the entire spectrum, the Lord reigns. Amen? This reality also brings us comfort that if Christ is king over the world and over the entire universe, he is king over my entire life, and he has commissioned me out to live my life with love and with allegiance, then he is king over my life, not just when I'm reading my Bible, not just when I am praying, not just when I am meeting with my GC, not just when I am with you here on Sunday nights. Christ is king over the entire, entirety of my life, even including the mundane parts of my life. Christ is king over my life, if I am folding laundry. Christ is king over my life if I'm digging a trench to find out where my water main burst in my front yard two two weeks ago. Christ is king then, and he is not asleep at the wheel. Christ is king over every minute of every day, of every week, of every year of my life, not just in the Christmas season when we're singing of wonderful hymns about him, And then we take out our nativity sets and put them on the table for a little bit. And then we pack up King Jesus and put him in the attic and get him out again next year. He is king of the cosmos. He is king, not just in the triumphal moments in my life, but in the mundane. And what a comfort. But his kingdom is not a kingdom that we build high walls to then hide behind and protect ourselves from the world. Decades ago, Carl Carl Henry said, The early church didn't say, Look what the world is coming to. This is not what the world, or the early church said about the world, like we can often say, Look what the world is coming to. Rather, the early church said, Look what has come into the world. Behold, look, look, oh world around me, what has come into the world? Not with like hand-wringing and like hemming and hawing about how bad the world is getting, but look who the king of the world is. The king has come as an infant, and he has been coronated as king, as he has been raised up over his people on his cross. And he ascended and he reigns now in heaven. The reality of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light and darkness, of the forgiveness of sins, of the spoken revelation of God to a world of deaf and mute idols, now God speaks through his people to the world, through us. Who on your street needs to hear the gospel? Who in your office needs to hear clearly from God instead of stumbling around in the darkness, just guessing at what God might want from their life? Who in your life needs to have their sins forgiven by trusting in and submitting to God? Jesus as king, especially in a culture like ours, like Albuquerque, where not all, but many folks in town might actually believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross, that he even rose again, certainly around this time of year, where people are especially prone to thinking about the goodness of Jesus. But who in your life need uh, not only to be comforted with the good news of the coming of Christ, but who need to put their faith in Christ, who need to give their allegiance to Christ. Faith, in our language, often can just mean that you just agree with a statement, that you kind of want that statement to be true. I have faith that the Dallas Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl, which one, is just a ridiculous faith to have, and two, it—because it's not going to happen—two, like, that has no bearing in my life. Like, Hoping that the Cowboys win the Super Bowl doesn't actually change the way that I parent or the way that we talk about uh, the reality of life around our dinner table or the way that I go about my day. Well, at least it shouldn't, right? For many uh, sports and other mundane things that we can have faith in actually does affect our life. But unfortunately, many folks go about their lives under the illusion that this kind of faith, this kind of just uh, mental agreement with a reality means that they have faith, that this kind of faith that, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and rose again. I believe that to be true. And they can think that that kind of faith is actually saving them when it has no bearing on the rest of their lives. Allegiance to King Jesus, though, who has come quietly, who has come unassumingly, who has conquered sin and trampled death, who has brought me from death to life— from slave to free, who unites me entirely to him. He then drags my sorry self into the very life of the triune God, both forever but beginning now. That is good news, and that is the kind of news that our neighbors need. Not just that, yeah, Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, and he died on the cross, and He rose from the dead. That's all true. But does that mean anything in their life? Does it mean anything in your life? Do you need to know that tonight? Do you need to give your allegiance, your life to Christ, who is the king of the cosmos and king of you? While this good news of the kingdom is absolutely for your neighbors, it is absolutely absolutely for your office places. This good news must go to the nations as well. The next section of chapter 42, beginning in verse 10, uh, is all about non-Jewish nations. It's about the Gentiles singing a new song of salvation. The world is singing a song of salvation that God has accomplished on their behalf. They're singing it in the desert, in the coastlands, on islands, over the hills, and everywhere. And in verse eight, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He is giving himself to the world for the world. And he is doing this not because he's petty and jealous. He's not unwilling to give his glory to any others because he's jealous in like a petty, sinful way but because he has created the world. Because he has the blueprint of peace and justice. Only he can save. Only he can transform. And he doesn't want people to begin uh, looking for blueprints of salvation in which there is no salvation. He will not let other gods make promises that that he knows that they cannot keep. And so, as John Piper says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship saving, delighting True worship of God doesn't exist in all places of the world, and so we go. There's a sense in which all of us are missionaries. We ought to live our lives on mission to our city, our city of blindness and our city of unbelief, but the Bible is always celebrating, is always commending those who will actually leave their own neighborhoods, who will actually leave their own cultures and nations, to take the light of the gospel to people who are in utter darkness, who are without access to the gospel. So even though it's fallen a little out of favor culturally to call these people what we call them, we call them missionaries. They have the very mission of God behind them. They are on the mission of God to bring the blueprint of justice and of flourishing life to the nations. We may not always call them missionaries for security purposes, but every bit of their lives, from where they have decided to live to where they drink coffee or buy their groceries, revolves around the proclamation that Jesus is king of the cosmos. You heard Mrs. M pray or ask that we would pray for their faithful proclamation. Their speaking of the saving good news of Christ that he has come to bring people into the life and communion of, with the triune God that all people were created for. These missionaries have made it their life's work to bring sight to the blind, to bring those prisoners out from the dungeons. And this is why we just keep annoyingly banging this Lottie Moon drum over and over and over. And then next December, we're going to bang it over and over and over until the Lord returns and we're still around. We have partnerships with several folks who are in North Africa with this very mission. And uh, some of these folks on the wall are uh, overseas through the Pioneers Sending Agency. We and several other churches directly support them financially to keep them there. They aren't receiving these funds from the Lottie Moon offering. But then the other families on the wall, and indeed the M's that you just met this evening, uh, who are in uh, North Africa and in South Asia, They are sent financially and they are kept financially through the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they, along with 3,500 others around the world, receive the majority of their funds through this one offering at the end of the year. So I'm so glad to be a part of a church who will emphasize uh, not just generosity in general, not just of the giving of gifts to our closest friends and family around this time of year, which let's be, on, let's be honest, like the majority of the gifts that you're going to give, the majority of the gifts that you're going to receive in, in this next week are likely going to be at goodwill uh, in two or three months, maybe even two or three days. Just be honest. Uh, but I am so glad to be part of a church who will emphasize generosity toward the kingdom, toward the mission of Christ, will, which will have impact eternally. If you missed the weekly email on Thursday, you missed this quote from Lottie Moon herself, where she said, Is not the festive season when families and friends exchange gifts in the memory of the gift? Is it not the most appropriate time to consecrate a portion from abounding riches and scant poverty to send forth the good tidings of great joy into all the earth? She's saying, even those who have great prosperity and those who are in scant poverty, isn't it this the best time to consecrate some of that generosity toward the very mission of God? I know that so many of you have not only already given to the Lottie Moon and so many others have been giving so generously, not just to the work of our church and just the annual budget, but also to unexpected needs within the life of our church. But this year's convention-wide goal is $165 million towards the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And our goal, as Clint said just a moment ago, is of an average of $100 per member, some more, some less. Uh, And if that's true, then that will turn out to $16,000, which, if I did my math right, is about 0.001% of the hopeful convention-wide goal. And I really hope that we can contribute this very, very meager, 0.001%, meager but meaningful, 0.001%. So let's do it. If you haven't given yet, uh, you can consider dropping a check in the offering box tonight or going home and tonight uh, giving online. Over the past five years, the IMB has had to pull off the field church planters, pull off the field missionaries, because of lack of funding. So let's send more. Let's make it no more that there's another year where the International Mission Board has to keep pulling people off the field, but are able to send more. Perhaps send you as a covenant for the nations, as a light for the nations. This is the mission of God in which he has called us to be a very small yet meaningful part of. We have families in North Africa because it is a land of spiritual darkness and of blindness. It's a land of a lack of allegiance to King Jesus, a lack of worship, but a lack of flourishing life, a lack of communion with God. And so we send. Perhaps send people. For the the majority of us, we send our dollars, but so that We might actually sing the song of Christmas, and here's a song, Matt, maybe next year you can write this song. Look what has come into the world. This is the song of Christmas. Look what has come into the world. This is far, just really, really far from you will get a sentimental feeling when you hear. Voices singing, let's be jolly, deck the halls with boughs of holly. That's a fine song. We don't have to be Scrooges. Or Grinches. You can sing that song, "Rocking Around the Christmas. It's a great uh, Kevin McAllister song. Uh, it's a fun time. I love Home Alone. I love all these things. But, man, you will get a sentimental feeling. No way. The Christmas season is a call to arms. That our king has come and he has begun his invasion. As his people, we follow him, our captain, as he pushes back against the darkness. And yet, just as our king comes unexpectedly and quietly, so we, his people, are now going to leave this place with humility, with kindness, not with anger, correcting people if they say happy holidays to us, but with kindness, serving others rather than squashing them, giving of ourselves rather than taking from others, but also while with kind humility, sent out with bold courage, filled with tidings of comfort and of joy, of hope and of peace to a world which stands in darkness, I'm hopeful that God will continue to use our small little church in ways that we could have never have hoped or dreamed. Uh, I'm hopeful that a few decades from now we might be able to look back over these decades at all of the people that we have sent from this church at all of the dollars that we have sent from this church for the good of the nations for the good of the world that God might use us as a covenant for the nations as a light for the nations let's pray that he would our father we are thankful that you have not given up on this world this world which has rebelled against you from our very beginning but that you have covenanted yourself to your people that you have brought peace to the world. That you have invaded this world, but done so in an unassuming way. That you did not come to be served, but that you came to serve. Help us, as your people, be following our King in his humility, in his service to the world, in his love for the world, that way we might be following our King and dying to ourselves. That we might following our King and living our lives each second of every day out of delight for the Father, out of dependence upon the Spirit. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope
0: you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www. Dot
1: Christchurchabq.com